Well, please turn your Bibles now to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I'll read this morning Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 15. And once, as, once again, as we listen, we remember this is God's holy word as he speaks to us. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Well, our church went through Ecclesiastes during this past year in a small group. After one of those small group studies, someone sent me a song that they thought was relevant to our discussion by an old rock band. You may recognize this. I won't tell you all the lyrics, but you'll get the big idea from the chorus. Okay? It goes like this. I want it all. I want it all. I want it all. And I want it now. It is a relevant song. It's a great song for Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes speaks to people like that. Ecclesiastes speaks to you if, if you want to hear the whole truth and don't hold anything back and, and you want to know about the big picture and you want to sum it all up and you want to go ahead and do it right now. So let's hear the truth from Ecclesiastes. Here's the truth. You can't have it all. You can't even have come close to that. In fact, you're going to keep wanting more than you can have, and you're not going to get what you want. It belongs to God. He's not going to give it to you. And in fact, in this fallen and sinful world, God has painted the word vanity like graffiti over everything that you want and do. And yet, there's good news in Ecclesiastes. After your selfish heart has finished colliding with God's sovereign control over all things, God has not abandoned you. Even in 
this difficult world, God does have a gift for you. Like He gives you Himself as, as your Savior, and He is more than enough. And so we want to consider that truth under three headings today from this portion of Ecclesiastes. The first heading is a time for everything. A time for everything. Verse 1 tells us we're going to talk about everything. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. There's our big idea. All things are under God's sovereign control. You know, For us as people, time is a boundary. It's a boundary. We can... We can remember the past, we can anticipate the future, but we're always going to be here in the present. And, and we're not going to get out of that. It's not like that for God. For God, time is a servant. Time is something He invented. He created it to accomplish His purposes in this world. And so He has appointed it. He has appointed for all things in creation, the proper season, the appointed time. Every matter is under His sovereignty. And Ecclesiastes 3 has a a poem I expect many of you are familiar with to illustrate this truth. It's going to give a series of statements, positive statements, negative statements. They alternate back and forth in an even pattern. Uh, The poem doesn't quite tell us everything we'd want to know. It doesn't tell us right or wrong or better or worse. It just says that there are all of these things. Some are active, some are passive, and they are all under God's hand. The poem has 14 lines. Two sets of seven, the perfect, complete number doubled. And in these 14 lines, God will give us, more or less, the entire human experience. So let's consider these line by line. Verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. It starts us off with two events that frame our life. The time that we are born, the time that we are died, these are both presented in a, very, in a passive sense. It's, it's giving you the sense of, of not being in control at all. If this is something God has appointed. And so you have this idea of God, God's sovereignty over the life cycle, but then immediately it talks about plants. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. You know, as far as the plant is concerned, you're like God. You're the one who appoints the time to start and the time to finish. It's a fascinating balance. It wants us to think about God over all things, including us, but us having a real responsibility and a real power in this world. There's this, this affirmation of, of sovereignty of God, responsibility of man. And these two things belong together, and they're not contradicting each other, and it would be wonderful to stop and think about it, but the poem moves on. And that's what this poem is like. It's going to introduce these big ideas to us and then keep us walking through life. Verse 3. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. You know, the things that you are in control of are a lot bigger than just plants. You do have control over plants. It it may be nice to go out and and have complete control over your garden except for all the parts you can't control because of the weeds and so on, but you mostly have control. But then there are these big things, a time to kill, a time when justice is is so significant, uh, perhaps an issue where someone has been murdered or something, that there's a requirement on humans to take the life of another. And then on the other side of that, it's time to heal. 
time to do what is necessary to restore a person, to bring a person back to health. That is an area of responsibility for us. There is a time to break down. Some things need to be destroyed. And there's a time to build up. Some things need to be repaired. Sometimes you need to start something new. All of that is a part of your responsibility before God. As I mentioned, this this poem isn't going to tell you right and wrong, wise or foolish, uh, but it is going to make you start thinking about those, I hope. I hope you want wisdom when you need to make the decision about which time it is. And we'll seek that and seek to know the righteousness of God. Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. We move into another realm of human experience, the world of emotion. And in this realm of emotion, we find that uh, the two poles are both appropriate in their place. There is a time for our weeping, and there is a time for our laughing. God has designed both of these things. And, and often we're not going to control them. Again, we, we've had our, our moment of control, or so to speak, but, but these are generally not things that you're going to pick, right? You don't, how many of the times that you've really wept or really laughed did you plan ahead of time I was going to do that? No, God is moving us in this world, in our relationships with one another. Sometimes these emotions are very private. You just cry at home. You just smile to yourself. Sometimes they're very public. Mourning in Old Testament times was a very public activity that people would recognize. Sometimes you do that publicly. Sometimes you, you go attend the dance and you join in with everybody else. And so God has appointed these things for us. In verse 5, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. This, this verse has the, the middle section. We're finishing our first set of seven. We're starting our new second set of seven. And right in the middle of this poem, we are taught that there is a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. Now, this is interesting, both because it's not entirely clear what the stones are for, and it's not entirely clear which of these is a, would be good and which would be bad. Is gathering the stones good and profitable, or is that, is that a problem, or is, is casting them away something helpful or a problem? And I've, So I went read read commentaries, not all of them. There's a lot of them out there. I read some tried to figure out what that meant, and the commentaries did not tell me. So there's two options here. One, very possible, is that the answer is out there, and I just haven't found it yet. The other is that God decided to put a mystery right in the middle for us. Because a lot of life is like this. There are a lot of things that, at, in the moment, we realize this is this is what I'm supposed to be doing, or this is what I'm supposed to not be doing, but... It's hard to explain the rhyme and reason of it in the bigger picture. Maybe there's some of, of both of those things going on in this verse. But again, the poem moves us on quickly. So let's talk about relationships, right? Another massive category where we can think and, and consider, and it tells us that there is a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. 
Sometimes it's, it's just really good to be close to somebody. Sometimes that's not good. Sometimes we don't want to be close to that person. Which time is which? Again, we need God's wisdom to know. Verse 6, there's a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. We move from relationships to possessions, something also that can be very important to us and very valuable to us. What is mine? What is not mine? Can I get more? Do I need to have less? Should I be making an effort to hang on to things? Should I be letting go? There's a time for all of these activities. Verse 7, there's a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. This tearing and sowing, again, is a little bit vague. It's hard to know exactly when you are doing the tearing and sowing. One one commentator suggests, well, we had a time of mourning and time of dancing. When they mourned back then, uh, they would tear their clothes. That was the public sign of mourning. Uh, but you wouldn't mourn forever. Eventually, you're going to need to sew that back up so that you can continue to wear it. The time of mourning is over. Maybe that's one of the references here. And then there's our words. Sometimes we should not speak. Sometimes we should speak. If, if we do have the time of mourning on our minds, certainly that, that reminds us of one of the most difficult times to know which time it is. When you're with the person in grief or you're in grief yourself, am, am I supposed to say something? What am I supposed to say? Is it better to sit silently with a person? And of course, there are many other areas of life where we need to answer this question. Which time is it for my words? Then we come to verse 8, the final statements of the poem. There is a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Just as we saw with the weeping and laughing, the mourning and dancing, there seems to be a private-public distinction going on, recognizing uh, how this is. This this is going to say the, the private love and hate, public, if you have hate and it goes as big as it can, you have war. If you have love and it extends to a whole community, then you have peace. And, of course, these things will work together in our lives, won't they? If I love my family, I'm going to hate those who want to destroy my family. If, if I love my family and there are people who are so opposed to my family that they are actually trying to destroy my family, at some point I'm going to take up arms and defend my family. And sometimes this happens on a national scale. And so the love and the hate balance with the war and the peace. But the goal is peace. The poem ends there for a reason. We're not, we're not aiming for the hatred and the war. We recognize that will happen in this life, but that's not where we want to be. We want to have the love, and we want to arrive at peace. And so all these things are under God's sovereign hand. God controls all of these things, but he reminds us in this poem that his final word is peace. His final word, what He has planned, what He is accomplishing in all of this, everything and every matter that is happening under heaven, what God intends for His people is peace. 
And so we've considered a time for everything. The next thing we are led to consider is a limit for everyone. A limit for everyone. I've moved somewhat quickly through this poem on time. As, as you can tell, thinking about all the things in it, we could stop and pause and, and meditate on any part of it or all of it together for, for plenty more time. But in good Ecclesiastes fashion, Solomon is going to sort of interrupt himself with a fairly blunt question. What gain has the worker from his toil? Hey, poem, what's your point? That was very nice. And I have work to do. And it's hard work. It's painful work, and it's not obvious to me that I'm even going to get anything out of it when I'm finished at the end of this work. This is one of the burning questions of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a question that's introduced right up front at the beginning. If you flip back over to chapter 1, we read the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil by which he toils under the sun? So this question will drive this book. And as I said, the, the word vanity is, is stamped on everything that we're going to think about. It's, it's a limit that God has put on us. What is vanity? It's, it's not simply our, our finite limit. That is, God is infinite, I'm finite, and so I have natural limits. This is, this is more the limit of living in a world that has been cursed. In a world that God has decreed, there will be thorns, and there will be more pain than there was before. And there will be frustration. And this is all connected to sin, our first parents and the sin that they committed. And all of this is going to lead to death. And that will be the last word of this life for us. That's vanity. And, and vanity, again, is, is in this book is a very broad idea that we are to think about, but it is especially driving at this question of our work. What can I gain? So all is vanity. Well, what all is the all that is vanity? Uh, it could seem like a very big thing. It is in some ways, but there's a focus given in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil? All is vanity, all the toil. That's especially where you're going to find the vanity in your life. You're going to keep working and working and working and getting frustrated and frustrated and frustrated. And at the end, you will die. And Ecclesiastes is going to take this idea and, and just look at it from all sorts of different angles. We'll just consider a few. So Solomon in this book just observes a lot. He just looks around his world, and we can look around our world and see the same sorts of things. So one, chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. He says, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. What's the point? Chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. 
and there was no one to comfort them. What's the point? Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Just one more, verse 7 of the same chapter. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. So what is the point? Going back to chapter 3, verse 9. What gain does the worker have from his toil? We try, we try, but we cannot get ahead. And so Solomon, in this context, asking the question again, is going to observe. He's going to look around the world and tell us what he sees. I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. Lots of people busy with busyness. What else do we see as we look around? Verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, what is that supposed to mean? Didn't we just talk about all of these frustrations? Do we not have an, a, a realm of life that is ugly? What does it mean when he says everything is beautiful in its time? Well, in Ecclesiastes, a good rule of thumb is, is when you're trying to figure things out, start at the story of creation and the fall and work your way back forward. So I think that's one thing we can do here. Well, what did God do? He, he literally made everything beautiful in the beginning. And we have that stated over and over in Genesis chapter 1. God creates on that day and then he says, it is good. And then on the sixth day, he comes to the end and he says, it is very good. He did make everything beautiful. So we should have that in our minds. But then we look at the world today. We see all the ugly things that are in this world. And yet, we do have sometimes, at least, some sense this is all going to fit together somehow. This is all going to go somewhere. This is all going to mean something in the end. And that's the meditation he takes us to in this verse, that we do have eternity in our hearts. You, know, you're, you are stuck right here in time, but your mind is just a little bit more free than that. Your, your mind can do just a little more. You can transcend just a little bit. You, know, you can't get out of time, but you can imagine the past and the future. And, and you, can, you can imagine even beyond what you expect. And don't we do this all the time? What if we could do time travel? What if, what if, what if we could, could mess with time and bend time? We, can, we think about these things. We imagine eternity. But again, we bump into a limit, don't we? At, at some point, our minds can't get there. We can't get all the way to eternity. We cannot find out everything God has done from beginning to end. Everything beautiful in its time, and yet I can't prove that to you. 
I can't take you outside and say, here's, here's, you know, look at this, this, and this, and here's the evidence everything's going to work out. I can say, I imagine that, I hope for it, but I can't, I can't give you the list of, of things that have happened in this world and say, or, or go into your life and say, look, yeah, you've had some hard things or something like that, but it's all, I can't prove that. I can't demonstrate that. And Ecclesiastes wants us to remember that. We're under a limit. We are not going to find it all out. And ultimately, that limit comes with death. And death does not discriminate. Ecclesiastes 9, verses 2 and 3, it is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. So, Christian... You don't have a get-out-of-jail-free card for these things. You, you can't escape by being more righteous or giving more sacrifices or anything like that. You are still going to suffer under the limits of vanity and the end of death. But Ecclesiastes wants to tell you good news. As much as it wants you to face the hard things of life, it wants you to hear good news. And that's what we'll consider under our final point. We thought about a time for everything a limit for everyone. Now let's talk about a place for me. A place for me. As Solomon does all of his observing and seeing and looking around I, in Ecclesiastes, he sees a lot of bad things. He doesn't always tell you what to think about what he sees. He just says, here's what I saw next. But then, at times, he will do a little more work in drawing conclusions. And that's what he does in this next portion of chapter 3. He draws some conclusions about what he has seen. First, verses 12 and 13. He says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. There are several places in Ecclesiastes where we hear a statement like this, and it, it's a bit of a surprise every time because he'll talk a lot about vanity and frustration and all the things you can't figure it out, and then he'll say, so be joyful. And we have to say, how did you get there? And here Solomon tells us how he got there. He says, this is God's gift. Now, as we read Ecclesiastes and we think about what God gives, that doesn't always give us a warm, fuzzy feeling. You can think about uh, chapter 1, verse 13, one of the first places he talks about God giving. He says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Solomon is not always going to uh, present God as only the God of happy things and somehow not connected to the hard things. God is sovereign over all. God appoints all things. That's very clear. And yet the fact that God appoints the things, the, the unhappy business that we have in this life, does not negate 
that God is a good God and that God gives good gifts. And what God expects of us is that we, humbled under his sovereignty, under our personal limits, will then be content. And in insofar as he has given you good gifts, however much or little they may be, God invites you to enjoy them. God says this is what he has given. Christian, you will live in a fallen world and you will face the vanity in every direction you turn. But you do have the opportunity to be content. Paul says it very well in the book of Philippians. Again, I expect familiar words. Philippians 4, verse 10. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Are you content? How's your heart today? Is your heart wishing you were somewhere else, enjoying things that you don't have? Or is your heart accepting and grateful that you are where you are with what you do have? How's your heart today? It's a remarkable conclusion that the book of Ecclesiastes makes as it considers all the hardship in this world. And yet even that conclusion is not the last conclusion. There's still more that we need to hear. Verses 14 and 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So yet another strong statement of the sovereignty of God, whatever God does endures forever, what you do probably won't, but what God does endures forever. Past, present, future, it's all under God's control, if life looks like it's going in circles, if it looks like it's random and doesn't make sense, and it seems that God has lost track of his purpose for the world, don't be fooled by that. God seeks what has been driven away. Every little detail, God is going to chase it down, and God is going to use it in its appropriate place for his glory. God isn't going to miss one thing. So that's good, but but as we hear Solomon say this, we need to ask him a question. How did you perceive this? How do you know this? Didn't you just tell us a moment ago that, yes, we have eternity in our hearts, but we can't get there, we can't, we can't search it all out, and that, yet here you have this very definitive statement about eternity. You know. You know that whatever God does endures forever. How do you know that? Well, there's only one answer that can fit. God must have told him. 
right? If he can't figure it out for himself, if he has all the wisdom that he has and he's searched and he's determined that, that he can't go figure this thing out and yet he's going to make a statement like that, God must have told him. We are limited in our nature. We are limited by our sin. And so we depend on the revelation of God. We depend on the word of God. And so that is why right in, this, in the middle of this statement about God's sovereignty, Solomon declares his, his central points in this book, we are to fear God. We are to live under God and be dependent on God. What, what is this fear of God? Fear of God is, is what you are experiencing when, when your sense of God is that he is bigger and more awesome and more majestic than anything else. And so all the things in this world that overwhelm you and, and drive you to do things that may or may not make sense, God overwhelms you more than all of those and influences you and directs you more than all of those things. Now, there can be a negative form of that. There, there can be a, a, a form of the fear of God that just means you're terrified of God. And so you run from God and you, and you want to keep him away from you. But the true fear of God, the right fear of God, knows the true God knows God not just as awesome and majestic, but also as good and as loving. And so when God overwhelms you, God attracts you. And you want to know more. You want to be closer, even as you know that you're walking on holy ground. And he pulls you close to him, and you trust him, and you love him, and you want to know him more. That's the fear of God. And the practical outworking of the fear of God is, is the concluding statement of this book. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. You hear how Solomon makes, makes you absolutely dependent on God's revelation. You need to fear the true God and exactly what he has told you is right and wrong. That's what you do. This is your duty. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That is what Solomon calls for you to do. Because the time is coming. The time is coming when God is going to reveal all things and God is going to judge all things and God is going to appoint the peace that never ends. The last word of all these times. In the book of Romans, I think Paul meditates on this, or at least has it in the back of his mind, as he develops his understanding of the gospel and how the gospel leads us to glory. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. And that word is the same word that, that is vanity all the way through Ecclesiastes. What creation was subjected to, that frustration, that, that, that reminder of our sinfulness and the, the death that is still over us. All of creation was subjected to that. So he says it was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
Again, you're not out of it yet. The, the futility is still there. The vanity is still there. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul says that we have first fruits. We have that reminder that God is at work. The Holy Spirit is here. But we're looking to something beyond this world. It's, it's not enough to find contentment. You know, that, that double knowledge that he has first. He says, even in this world, you can be content. Well, that's true, and it's a gift of God, but you don't even have to be a Christian to have some form of that in this life. You can, you can have some sense of making peace with this world, of course, until you die, and then you don't have peace with it anymore. But there needs to be something that goes even beyond that, something that death cannot destroy. And that is our faith in God, our fear of God, our, our dependence upon Him and what He has done through Jesus Christ. And that is the hope that we are led to by Ecclesiastes and by Romans, by the whole Scripture, is that we have a Savior, that Jesus Christ, who is God Himself, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh, and as a fully human man, he lived a perfect life and he subjected himself to all sorts of vanities in this world all the way up to that last one, death itself. And he suffered death and then after taking the punishments for our sin on himself, he rose from the dead. He beat it. He has the victory over the whole thing and he went up into heaven and he sent down the Holy Spirit and said this spirit is going to remind you that all of these things are going to be worked out that there is still a reason to move forward there is a contentment you can have right now with God's good gifts and there is a patience that you can have right now because God is going to do more and someday Jesus is going to come back and he will make all things new so where is your place? Well, it's right where you are. It's right where God has put you. You're, you're very solidly planted there. God is sovereign. You're not going to get out of where God has put you. And yet you're not there without hope. You're not there only for the frustrations, even if there are some really hard times and really difficult things. God has this place for you. And you can be content and you can have patience not by looking around the world and solving all the puzzles and explaining how everything works together, but by fearing God, by putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you wrestle. Maybe you want it all, and you want it all, and you want it all, and you want it now. I get it. Me too. Well, let's do something better than that. Why don't we wait? Why don't we have patience? Why don't we fear God and keep His commandments and be content? Because the last word is still coming. There's a time for peace. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we do stand in awe of You and submit to You. 
as our sovereign God. It is hard truth many times to say that you have appointed every last detail that happens in this world, but we know it is the truth and we know it is right to say that. Lord, help us to fear you. Not to run away from you or to be angry at you, but to see who you are and to be drawn to you. Lord, help us to be drawn to your word where we know you. Help us to find encouragement and hope in our meditation on it. Lord, give us contentment. Give us patience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.